there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. I am so thrilled you press play. I'm going to go out on a limb here. And considering we're on the eve of the new year, I'm going to make a prediction for 2019. I'm going to say that this episode is going to flip your brain over inside your cranium the way a spatula flips a pancake or your breakfast eggs in a pan. That is because my next guest is someone who is all about identifying trends early. And one of those trends is around the future of work. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about how the career of the future will look more like an artist's portfolio than a path. Just hold on to that thought for a minute. We're going to be digging into it in detail. But before I introduce you to the incredible April Rennie, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's the weekly newsletter we blast out on Mondays to give you an exclusive overview of the episodes we're going to be dropping that week. And it is super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time the number four coffee.org and the sign up box is right there. And if you've got a couple minutes, I want to invite you to scroll down to check out the rest of the T4C homepage and you'll see we've organized all the T4C episodes we've already dropped by career. So if you're interested in entrepreneurship, click on that box. Or perhaps it's advertising and marketing or writing and communications or public relations and journalism. Whatever your interest, there should be a box for you to click with a bunch of professionals in those careers for you to binge on. And if we're missing a career and professionals you're interested in, please hit me up on email at andrea at time, the number four coffee.org. And let me know. And I will do my best to line up those guests for you. Now, my friends, please grab your mug and take a chug of a delicious caffeinated brew because it is time for a caffeinated career conversation. And my brilliant next guest is April Rennie, someone who is equal parts global authority, advocate, ally, and adventurer. She sees trends early, understands their potential, and helps the rest of us do the same. April is an independent advisor focused on the new economy, the digital economy, the future of work, and global citizenship. But April is not only a thought leader She's also a doer. She connects people, ideas, and resources in ways that say, wow, that's what the world needs. And then she makes it happen. Over the years, April has helped and continues to help startups, policymakers, investors, and international organizations see emerging trends afoot and build more responsible businesses. Her insights are decidedly global based on her work and her travels in more than a hundred countries. April, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am. Thank you so much, Andrea. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I am delighted to have the opportunity to speak with you, April. As a self-described global citizen who makes a point of working in about 20 different countries every year, April, 
I have to ask you, where are you at this moment as we enter the final hours of 2018? In fact, I was just joking about this with some friends that this is the first time in five years that I'm wholly in the United States for the holidays. And I am speaking to you today from Portland, Oregon. Oh, I love Portland. I used to work for Mercy Corps, which is headquartered in Portland. It's walking distance from where I am right now. So there we go. Very nice. Well, I'm actually wondering if you are drinking a hairbender coffee from one of my favorite coffee shops. In fact, I've got a cup of Sisters. Do you know Sisters Coffee? I actually don't. Oh, so there's a sister is based out of Sisters, Oregon, but they have two little outposts here in Portland. So have some of their beans. Portland, as you know, is a wonderful city for coffee. <laughs> so there's there's no shortage of selection. Absolutely. And the hairbender I was alluding to is from Stumptown, which yeah. was right around the corner from where Mercy Corps office was. And I really enjoyed going there and getting some. So I'm psyched. You've got your delicious sister's coffee and we're going to settle in here and we're going to chat about why it's so important to you as someone who was born in the United States to self-identify as a global citizen. In fact, you say that you, quote, belong to the world, which I have to say is such a beautiful sentiment. But during a period of heightened nationalism around the world, it's also really brave. Yeah, well, and we can probably talk more about that end of things later in the conversation, I suppose, because one of the things I'm doing right now is actually finally writing a book about some of these issues. Now, going back, though, much further in history in terms of how I first saw myself as a global citizen, a lot of credit is actually due to my parents, but my father in particular. And Both of my parents were teachers, so I come from a family of educators, and my father was a cultural geographer, and you might think, like, what's that? Well, it means that he studied the migratory patterns of people and plants and animals and how things moved around the world, going back millions of years or more recently as we look at migration and immigration. And he worked in an era well before we have a lot of the polarizing debates that we have now. But he loved maps. And, you know, I sort of idolized my father, I think, growing up. Uh, We were two peas in a pod. And every morning at breakfast, this is one of my youngest, earliest memories. I was probably four or five. But you know how in many households you have children have plastic placemats so that you don't spill on them, right? And they have like a cat or a ball or something on the placemat. Well, my placemat had a map of the world. And every morning over breakfast, my father and I would play the capital game. And he would say the name of a country and I would fire off the capital. I mean, I had to learn these things, but I can still remember being very, very young and just candidly loving the time with my father which ended up teaching me a lot about geography. And even back then, I just remember it was drilled into my head as close as one can imagine as something being like almost not rote, but like nothing is more important than understanding that diversity is our strength as people and that the world is a really interesting place and go out there and explore it and, you know, come from a very, very modest background So there wasn't a lot of money. There wasn't a lot of physical stuff. We camped. 
We drove by car across the United States as my father did his research. I did get to travel internationally later, but it was a lot of home stays and very simple kinds of travel. But the sense that, that one, the world is bigger than your own backyard, but to really understand that you can learn something from everybody and that diversity truly is a strength. So that parlayed not only into professionally how I went, what I went and did, but how I saw the world. And what's interesting is, you know, some decades later, that sentiment has never been more needed. On the one hand, under more threat, but also unprecedented opportunity to connect with other people around the world to a degree that I certainly didn't have when I was looking at that placement of the globe. And yet today for young people, there are just unparalleled opportunities to take that sentiment to the next level. So how did you take your love of geography and turn that into a desire to be seen as at one with every nationality and not an American who happens to be interested in and passionate about the world? Hmm, that's a great question. I'm not sure there wasn't one instant where it happened. And I'm not actually sure it was a deliberate choice, per se. I would say it was more the process of growing up, shedding skins, constantly trying to keep my curiosity about what makes the world tick and what makes people tick. From a very early age, we did travel a lot. But like I said, it was a lot of camping. It was national parks. It was different things, but it was like seeing new things. And my parents really deeply encouraged me to get out there and see what the world was about. You know, they always said, like, don't look to us to help make you do it. But we're never going to get in your way of you going out and exploring. So there was a constant sense of that was a good thing. And as I mentioned, you know, my parents were teachers. It was a very modest upbringing. The two things we were allowed to spend money on, I guess you could say, were education and travel. And, you know, now as an adult, I suppose as a child, I kind of thought that was the Kool-Aid that every kid had to drink. Now I know that's absolutely not the case, but I'm very, very grateful. Those were the values and ethos that were in my family. And so candidly, as soon as I could, I was flinging myself as far as I could. I remember having a pen pal as soon as I could start to write. I had a pen pal in Japan, but this was snail mail days. I remember even doing things like, I guess I can admit now, you know, Shortly after getting my driver's license, telling my parents I was taking a trip with a friend and actually did the trip solo, and it was an interstate road trip. So I was ready for adventure and ready for some action, both because it had been encouraged, but also the more I learned about the world, the more intrigued I became by it. And that sense of, I grew up in between San Francisco, California, and Colorado. So I had some degree of diversity, I would say not nearly the diversity that's possible today. But every person I met who was different from me, I inevitably gravitated towards them. I inevitably was like, what can I learn? What can they learn? Like, ooh, and pretty quickly found that I was actually often more comfortable around people that I didn't necessarily represent on paper and kind of just continued to lean into where felt right. And before long, you find yourself feeling more at home. I guess you could say feeling more at home everywhere on the one hand. But what's interesting is at this point, I don't take anything for granted. But there are those days where I actually forget <laughs> that I'm in, in, a surra in surroundings where I look like nobody. I might as well have landed from the moon. And yet you find people open, generous, interested in learning about you. And then it is important to have roots. And we can talk about this later as well. Like 
roots in a place that you feel is home. But it's a real blessing I find in today's world to feel like many places could be home and also to have created at this point a community of global citizens or folks that have a similar kind of mindset around the world so that honestly, you can travel almost anywhere and probably find somebody you know. I love that. And we're going to get more into how you discovered and built this global citizenship once you got into college. But Mm -hmm. first, April, I want to talk with you because you heard in the introduction that I gave about how you're going to flip our brains inside our cranium. As you may know, the mission of Time for Coffee is to help young people convert their college degree into a career they love. But I want to hear from you why the way that I've described this is, in fact, the wrong way for Java junkies and the rest of us to look at our post-college careers. Sure. And there are some things that are very much individually driven in all of this, and some of this that are very much driven by what we might think of as macro changes, things that are happening in the broader world. And I want to start there because one of the themes I focus on these days is the future of work. Where are we heading? What is happening? Not just with regards to jobs, but how people are working. And one of the most interesting statistics, trends, shifts that's out there that some of the listeners may have heard about, but I'm guessing many have not, is this shift from jobs and lifetime career employment to much more independent, flexible, and even remote work. People mixing together how they work, what their schedule looks like, whether they work in an office or remotely or virtually, all of this is being kind of thrown in the air and we're still waiting to see how all the different pieces fall. But if you go back a generation for many of our parents, the expectation is you would graduate, get a job, stay in that job for a while, a couple generations ago, you'd stay there for life. Now we see more, you know, shifting between jobs. But today, the rise in the number of independent workers, freelancers, and self-employed is unprecedented in modern history. And it's a sea change from where a generation or two ago were. And when I say the term freelancer or independent worker, all I mean is you're not a full-time employee somewhere. You don't have one employer who's paying your salary and giving you benefits and, you know, sort of the package. But it also means you're not beholden to, as some people would call it, the man. You're not beholden to somebody else's schedule. You do have unprecedented freedom, flexibility, and independence. It comes at a cost, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Today, already, 57 million Americans. So that means 35% of the entire workforce and 47% of millennials already today are freelance. They're independent. They don't have jobs as we typically think of them. And this independent worker cohort is rising, is growing three times faster than the rest of the workforce. It's estimated that in less than 10 years, it's more likely that you are going to be a freelancer than have a traditional job as we've thought about it for the last 200 years or so. No one is feeling this shift more already than young people. On the one hand, companies are hiring in very different fashions. So they might hire you as an independent worker with a renewable contract or something like that. But on the flip side, it's actually never been easier or cheaper to be your own boss. 
when you think about what it took, if you wanted to be self-employed in 1985, you needed an office and furniture and a phone and you didn't have the internet. So you had to find people to work with. It was expensive, took a lot of time, a lot of money. Then the internet shows up. Then we start having things like email and Google and jobs boards. And then you have LinkedIn. And today you can run a business through your phone. It costs nothing other than a phone, an app, maybe some money to get set up. But if you have skills that are marketable, young people generally get this. But I think what's interesting in my work, and I I work with, you know, startups and corporations and young people and old people and, and whatnot, young people inherently almost get the power of a smartphone and how you conduct business and earn income and buy things and all the rest through your phone. What's harder to understand is actually how massively different this is from even 10 or 20 years ago. Because 10 or 20 years ago, young workers were not thinking about the workforce. They were busy growing up. They were busy, you know, in primary school or whatever. There is all kinds of opportunity out there, but we have to remember putting it against the macro backdrop because for a lot of seasoned workers and CEOs and people who are in leadership positions, they're really struggling as to how to make sense of this old world and new world of work. Mm. That is so fascinating. And clearly, so much of this has come about because of the technology that exists today, as you said, with the smartphones, with the internet. I want to ask you, this is from a piece, a blog post you wrote earlier this year, in which you talked about a person's career as being more like a portfolio. You I think, coined the expression a portfolioist career. And you said that it's kind of like a bento box, the career of the future looking more like the Japanese meal that you get in a restaurant than a path. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. So delighted to. So again, and it, it relates to these broader macro shifts. You know, when you, a generation ago, you would get a job, you would work at a company, you would climb up a corporate ladder, you would stay there typically for quite a while, but you you had a track and it was pretty linear. And you were going to work your way up or you work your way forward, but you would enter one profession and that's what you were likely going to do for a while. And that way of looking at the workplace, but that way also of looking at talent is really shifting. Where we now look at, and a part of this relates to the pace of change and largely of technology, But when you think about jobs that people are doing today or roles that they have versus roles that were needed 20 years or 40 or 50 years ago, some things are the same. You know, we always have teachers. We have things like plumbers. We have accountants, that sort of thing. But take the example of a data scientist. Now, data science as a field didn't even exist 10 years ago. Didn't exist. There were no position descriptions. Data science wasn't something you'd go study. Today, data scientist is one of the most popular, fast-growing careers out there. So I share that because there's part of what we're talking about, which is the future of the workplace. Part of this is about the future of education. Part of this is also about the pace of change and to be a qualified worker or professional who can add value to companies, organizations, who can add value to the world. You have to stay up to date with what you know and what you do and all of that. And that leads us directly into this kind of portfolioist bento box kind of career approach, which is 
well, one of my mentors and a colleague of mine, Robin Chase, she founded the company Zipcar, if you're familiar with that company. And she is a serial entrepreneur who happens to also be a grandmother. So she's been at this for a while. And the way she likes to say it is, my father had one job. I, Robin, will have six jobs. And my kids will have six gigs or roles at any given time. And that's just how the world of work is shifting. But when you think about having those six things at any one time, that's very much like like a portfolio, like a bento box. What it requires is a rethinking of skills development and upskilling and reskilling and staying current because the pace of change means that a lot of things we know today are not actually going to be that useful to know five years from now. There are a lot of things around emotional intelligence and soft skills and relationship skills and those sorts of things that will serve you over a lifetime. But technically, functionally, the skills that we have may or may not be still in demand five years from now. And so all of this looking at a portfolio in which over time, you build a range of skill sets that you can combine and mix and match depending on the client, depending upon the day, depending upon the need that you see, but that you can pull out over time. And part of this, though, around this looking at it as a portfolio, being much more deliberate about a career that you as an individual curate and have greater control of, rather than simply, you know, in the past, you get a job, here's what the job description says, this is what you're going to do, whether you want to or not, whether you like to or not. You have to buy into the whole thing. That's less and less the case. So there's a real element of individual personal agency and being able to go out there and build something and do stuff that you love to do. It does require taking more responsibility for your own career, how it plays out, but much more, not just meaning and purpose, but also I look at something like a portfolio and like each day can be a little bit different if you craft it well. Yeah. I'm thinking right now as you're talking, April, and what's going through my mind is tell me if you, if this resonates with you or not. But it's almost like you're telling young people, try to reverse engineer where you want to be in five or 10 years and disaggregate what the skills are that you will need to get there and spend the next five to 10 years building those skills. Does that make sense? Bingo. Bingo. Absolutely. And uh, 100%. And what's interesting is I think I went to college and you know had my early career days at a much earlier time, but I was, for whatever reason, I can't actually quite figure out what it was in me at the time. I have some ideas, but that's very much how I looked at my own career. And in fairness, I had people second guessing me all the time. It looks like you're not focused. What are you doing? Your CV makes no sense. And I was like, uh, I think I have a longer term, bigger picture build to do here. So like, if you trust me on this, and in fairness, it took a lot of just kind of grit and trusting myself that this was the right thing to do. But then there came a point in time, and this was roughly in my early 30s, where the same people that had been giving me a really hard time in my 20s around like, why are you just, you're going here, going there. I, I, I just don't, it doesn't make sense. Then they looked at the kind, the composite of skills that I was building. And this included, we can talk about this later, perhaps, this included really going off the professional path, where friends and colleagues were saying, you should like go to Wall Street, you should get an analyst position, you should do this, that, and the other. And I was like, 
that just, no, that looks so uninteresting. And I don't think that's actually what the world needs right now. And I don't think I'm going to be my best self there. And I had all kinds of people sort of just, just getting up, upset or not understanding what I was after. And I went way off the beaten path. And I did things that were not about necessarily earning income. They were not definitely not about climbing a corporate ladder. But I went off for several years and did some very atypical things and then started combining those with more mainstream skills and some graduate degree and that sort of thing. And then these same friends and colleagues who had been giving me a hard time, they looked at me and they were like, oh, <laughs> that, looks, that looks really interesting. How, how do we do what you did? And I thought, wow, you know, it's not that hard to do, but it requires an open mind. So let's talk about how young people still in college can do what you did. And I promise our listeners, we will get to hear more about what April did and her journey. But for those Java junkies still in college, how can they better prepare themselves for the Japanese bento box career versus the Western early bird special, where you've got that simple three course meal for $12.99? Yeah, this is a great question. And I, it's very perfectly timed. I actually had a conversation about this just recently with a freshman in college. And so I have, I think, more refined thoughts to make. So this is where, and I think I am going to speak mostly to students in college. I totally get that there are a lot of people for whom college is not the right track. There are a lot of ways you can learn a lot of what I'm going to say now on some form of what I'm going to talk about online for free, for a reduced cost. You've got programs like General Assembly. You've got lots of different ways you can hack your way into this because, in fact, I I value greatly the experience and the skills that come with higher education and a higher education degree. Uh, but I get that that is a really expensive path to take these days. That is, there's very little guarantee that you're going to get what you want when you graduate. And go back to what I was saying before, it is equally, if not more likely today that someone who is in college upon graduation is not going to get a job. They are going to be deemed an independent worker. Now, some of those students, some of those individuals will actually go and launch enterprises of their own. And some of them will be deemed independent workers, but within a larger organization. But I want to bring this up because for college students today, you are on the front line of this shift and you need to be prepared to be an independent entrepreneurial worker and thinker because that's the reality of the workplace you're going to enter. There is no guarantee of a job upon graduation. There's no guarantee of a job that you like. And there's no guarantee of job security. Another interesting statistic, average job tenure, the average amount of time somebody spends in a job today, for the whole workforce, it's about three to four years. For millennials, the average job tenure is 13 months. You're going to be hopping around a lot. So yeah. coming back to what skills, there are kind of three buckets that I put them into. The first bucket would be broadly speaking, business related, entrepreneurship related, leadership related. Do you know how to, and not saying that you have to go do this, but would you be able to build an online business? And that means coming up with a something to sell, could be skills, could be a product, could be lots of things. Can you build a website and a business plan and run a budget? And do you have financial literacy and digital literacy to market something, to share something, to build a business that could thrive and earn you income. I say that because it's a wonderful kind of capstone project. It's something I think everyone should do before graduation. Not that you have to go run this business afterwards, 
You need those skills though, because quite likely you're going to be running your own business, even if it's just you as a solo entrepreneur at some point in your life. Nobody teaches you this. Even business school does a pretty poor job of teaching you this. And yet you don't want to be thrown into the work world, not having those kinds of skills. So it's budgeting, website design, very simple marketing, very simple strategic plans, that kind of thing. Second bucket, and this is going to look different for everybody. And I should say back on that first bucket, it's very much about building a mindset as well. And so it's just, what does it mean to be a self-starter? We need like that way of thinking and doing and being and any course that prompts you or nudges you towards those ends is a good course. It could be an econ, it could be in political science. It's not about the major so much as it is about what skills are you learning. The second bucket is actually much more on the digital end of things. And I wouldn't have said this when I was in college necessarily, but you might have heard of, well, obviously IQ, which is like your intelligence. There's EQ, which is called emotional intelligence, which is your soft skills and ability to carry conversations and be in meaningful relationships. And there's a third tagline that's coming up called DQ, which is called digital intelligence. DQ relates to your digital savviness, not just do you know how to build an app, but do you know when to put your phone down? Do you know when you're the victim of identity theft? Do you know when you're being hacked? Do you not see your phone as an extension of yourself? That is an important skill. And more broadly, though, Having some coursework in could be computer science, could be tech and innovation. That is going to be a kind of third or fourth language that people are going to need to speak. So, and I say this not because it's where you necessarily will have your career, but if it, this is table stakes, you've got to have some basic conversationalism. You don't have to be fluent in the language, but you need to be conversant in the languages of computer science, tech, innovation, so business, entrepreneurship, tech, innovation. And the third piece, which is minor, well, it's not minor, it's important. Pick something you love to do. Pick something you're deeply curious about. It could be physics. It could be theater. It could be, I don't actually care what. Something that you love and you really want to dive deep, 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 deep into and use that as the crux around which you build all this other stuff. So let's say you're interested in physics. Maybe you major in physics, but you're going to build a business that's related to something that allows you to dive deeper into physics, and you're going to learn some kind of tech innovation that relates to physics. But one thing that, and I don't want to say employers, one thing that organizations that may hire you or want to work with you down the road, they want to see you follow something you're passionate about all the way through to as far as you can possibly push it. They care much less about what that thing is and much more about how you pursued your curiosity, how you stayed dedicated, what stones you turned off, and how it changed you as a person. I love that, April. And the only thing that I would add to that incredible array of tantalizing morsels in that bento box is perhaps finding out while you're in college, maybe even before you're in college, what you're good at. And the way that you do that is what comes easily to you. So as April wisely is advising you, do what you love to do, what you're interested in, and then discover what you're really good at. The things that tend to come easily to us, we often discount and think because it comes easily to us, it isn't of value. But the truth is, those are your gifts. And when you combine all of that together, 
I think you have, what do we have? A Michelin star meal? Mm -hmm. And I'd like to build, I think you're right. I'd like to build on that a little bit. I think we're saying the same thing and maybe framing it a little bit differently. For me, there's, it's so much of this is about curiosity. And society, and I'll get on a little bit of a soapbox here, but society and the educational system as we generally know it today does a really good job of stamping out curiosity in young people. <laughs> you, yes. ask, you ask a five-year-old, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they're like, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be like a sportscaster. I want to be an athlete. I, wanna, I, I can do anything. You ask an eight-year-old and they're like, I want to do this and this. You ask a 10-year-old and by the age of 14, it's like, well, I got to get into college and so I'm going to focus on this and this and I'm not sure I can do this stuff I used to think I might want to do. And, and what we've done, the educational system today was structured to train people and did a very good job of it for a very long time, but to train people to work primarily in factories or to go to war. But Seth basically, Godin. This is okay, Seth Godin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Seth Godin is actually a friend of my husband. So lots of deference and respect for Seth's work. But that's exactly it. For a long time, we needed you to obey orders. Right now, in today's world, today's economy, today's workplace, obeying orders is not going to get you or your company or the world very far. We need creativity, imagination, curiosity. So I say, here's what's interesting. Follow what you're curious about. You may not be good at it on day one, but if you're curious about it and stay curious enough about it, you're going to get good at it. If something, to your point, if something doesn't appeal to you, don't worry about it and don't try to fit yourself. Don't try to fit a square peg into a round hole. Go do what you love to do, but do it in a way that you can combine it with other skills that make you unique compared to others who are going to be entering the workforce and you know will be perhaps buying for the same kinds of positions or have the same kinds of goals that you have. You will need to stand out. And that's not in a kind of, I don't want to sound like I'm being competitive here. It's more about with the portfolio approach, you do need to have a unique combination that makes you stand out amongst others. Because otherwise, given today's flow of information and barrage of things we're supposed to be looking at and reading and clicking and all of that, you've got to have some way that makes you something that makes you uniquely you. Well, one of the other questions I want to ask you before I ask what makes you uniquely you, April, is for those listeners, those Java junkies who may have already graduated from college, may already be out there in the workforce, immersed in their post-college work life, you've alluded to some of the online ways they can enhance their skill set. What do you recommend they focus on in order to create the most useful skills portfolio now? Sure. Well, it's going to be different for each person because I think what you're looking to do is both amplify the skills you've got and love, but fill in gaps over time. And for those people listening who have graduated, I actually like to say these days, like, do not fear because we are actually entering a world in which all workers, all professionals of all ages are going to be much more part of a world of what we can think of as lifelong learning. So jobs are shifting to become like work. (laughs) It's not about having a job and a lifetime career employment kind of thing. Similarly, there's this shift in thinking from education as like something you do when you're young and then somehow don't do it again. Or you have a phase where you 
get educated, which is just bizarre to me. We are all entering a world in which it's all about lifelong learning. So I say this for people who have recently graduated. I actually say this for workers in their 30s or 40s who don't actually know if what they know how to do today is going to be needed as much in 10 years time, as well as, of course, for people in college to prepare yourself for what's ahead. Every few years, we're likely going to need to dip back into what we might think of as air quotes, education or skills. A lot of this can be done online. A lot of this can be done, you know, more and more universities are starting to realize too, that they have to think beyond like we give you a four-year degree or a two-year graduate degree. What does it look like for a university to become a center of lifelong learning where they actually would offer ongoing courses to workers and alumni and community members of all ages? So I think for me, if you've already graduated, it's less about you need to go learn topic X. It's much more about where do you want to be five years from now doing what kinds of things? And then you look at, it's similar to what we were talking about earlier, a little bit of reverse engineering. Come back to where you are today. What skills do you need to get you there? Where can you find those skills to learn? Sometimes you can find those skills in the role that you've got by actually being a bit more proactive about looking beyond the periphery of, of your current your core role, are there ways you can learn some of these skills doing what you're doing? Then you've got programs like, I'll just mention General Assembly, because they're very, very good on the tech end of things. So sort of the second bucket I was talking about. You also have things, platforms like Skillshare, which I'm guessing a lot of people have heard of, that offers classes on everything under the sun. You can get an unlimited subscription to Skillshare, which is very, very reasonable. What I've found, even I've subscribed to Skillshare, things that I've heard about, and I'm like, I want to invest an hour or two to see if I want to learn more about that. This would relate more to the first bucket that I was talking about. You know, there are courses on a bit of marketing, a bit of website development, a bit of, but also a lot for creatives. So it's really a matter of make it a given that you're going to need to upskill every year, every couple of years and figure out what are those skills you still lack? What are the ways you can find that you can get them? And again, sometimes this may mean going back into formal education. Sometimes this may mean looking more creatively online or within your community. What I'm amazed by is just how much is popping up all over the place for this kind of learning to take place. Fantastic. So April, let's flash back to a time in your formal education when you were in college. And while you graduated summa cum laude from Emory, there was something that happened that was devastating in your life that really changed the course of your life. And I thought before we talk about your major and what you thought you were going to do with that major, you could share with the Time for Coffee community what that experience was. You bet. And it continues to define my life to this day. And I think it's helpful to talk about it at the outset because it lays some foundation. The nice thing is there are certain parts of me that were that actually stayed on track and got amplified. And there were other ways in which my life just changed. So when I was a junior at college, and I actually wasn't even at Emory at that point, I was halfway around the world in Europe. I was studying abroad. I wasn't with a program. I wasn't living with other Americans or that sort of thing. I had applied directly and I was, I was studying at Oxford University. And I got a phone call right the very last week of my studies. I was wrapping up and getting ready to actually go to Italy to spend another year abroad, but working. 
And I got a phone call that, lo and behold, both of my parents had been killed in a car accident. And I'm glad I got to tell listeners about my dad earlier because you get the kind of sense of a guy he was and how close I was to him. But I lost both of my, you know, biggest champions, supporters, the people who had kind of tried to help guide me through life thus far. And my whole world flipped upside down. And needless to say, I did not go to Italy. I had to come back home. I had to grow up really fast. And I had to figure out how to put my life back together and also how to make a go of it moving forward professionally, personally. I kind of had to redefine family. And I had to make a career that made sense to me, but also that I would hope my parents would be proud of. And not from a feeling of guilt, but more a feeling of, they had raised me with with good values, I think, as I was sharing some of before around, you know, diversity and, and being of service to others. But having that wrench thrown smack in the middle of my college time was a big change, understatement, but also had a profound effect and shaped everything that happened from that point forward. So how did that affect the rest of your time in college and what did you do after you graduated? Yeah, so it's it's fascinating where I went to college. I actually entered pre-med because I like math and science. And then I realized that that was going to be really hard to travel as much as I wanted to. And I had just insatiable wanderlust. And this is from, you know, when my parents were alive. I should go back briefly and just mention that my parents, in addition, the two things that I was very much taught, one was world is bigger than your own backyard and diversity is our strength. And secondly was, and I think because my parents were educators, they really emphasized the fact that the simple fact that I was a girl and got to go to school made me really lucky. And that globally, you know, most, many, many, many millions, tens, hundreds of millions of girls don't actually get to go to school simply because of where they're born and what gender they are and so forth. It's getting better, but it's still a massive issue. And so they instilled in me this sense of because I'd been so lucky to get an education, I had a duty to give back and that I had to think of my career in service of others. How could I be of use to humanity? And so I went to college with that kind of ethos and I was interested in pre-med and then I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to travel more and then I majored in anthropology and long story short, I ended up majoring and changing my major seven times. But by the time I was studying at Oxford and got this phone call, I had pretty much settled on economics and international relations. I love math and numbers and I love the world. So long story short, I ended up graduating with majoring in international studies, which was econ, poli sci, and history. And I also majored in Italian because that was something, part of what I was doing as well, and minored in art history. So, and art history was because I knew I would never work in that space, but I loved it. I would say that was the curiosity of, of my, my end of things. The one thing I knew I wanted to do, and I knew my parents would support, and I knew that they would support in terms of the values. I wanted to see how more of the rest of the world lived. I wanted to travel. I wanted to do these things that would help me better understand how to be of service. And so it wasn't my plan at the time, but ultimately I ended up spending nearly four years without a permanent address, traveling and working. But five months of the year, I researched and guided biking and hiking trips in places like Italy and Patagonia and so forth. And the other seven months of the year, I traveled and I earned enough income to cover my travels, but it, it wasn't enough to pay a mortgage or raise a family. But I wasn't worried about that, oddly, because I didn't think I had long to live, but also because I knew that if I 
if I were to die tomorrow, and I know this sounds morbid, but I think it's, it was a really useful lesson for me to have at the age of 21, 22. If I were to die tomorrow, would I live a life that I was proud of? Would I live a life that I could feel like I gave it my all? And the travel really cracked open something in me, which not only gave me clarity around what I wanted to do for graduate school, but also the kind of life that I wanted to be to live and the kind of people I wanted to be of service to. So this is all against the backdrop of, I joke sometimes that my 20s, basically, I had, I always had a lot of energy. So I still had the energy. And and I always loved to travel. So I still had my love of travel. But what I no longer had was any parental accountability. (laughs) So I basically was like, I've got to make sense of this for me. And I do wish my parents were around, but it forced me to get really clear on what mattered to me, which ended up being very, very different than what much of society in the world was telling me about going after the fancy title and going after making a bunch of money and, and that sort of thing. You know, it, it has taken a lot of work in the 20 plus years since then, but the pieces have started to fit together. Each year that passes, the fit, pieces fit together better and better. Oh, my goodness. Well, April, thank you so much for sharing that. And for those Java junkies who are interested, I highly recommend for a whole bunch of reasons that they go on to April's website and obviously follow you on Twitter. And I'll make sure to include your Twitter handle in show notes. But to see the way, one of the many ways that April is demonstrating her connection to all of these different countries in the world. And it involves a very unusual thing. (laughs) It involves April doing handstands (laughs) in front of different iconic, whether it's statues or temples or buildings or beaches or whatever. April, I have no idea why you picked the handstand. Is there a particular reason behind it? Yes, there is. I love that you asked this. And it's a great story, which actually now that listeners have heard the heard what I've said already, it's going to make a lot make hopefully make more sense. And I also just want to underscore that all of what we're describing now and the travel and this, that, and the other, a lot of times I've heard from young people in particular that like, that's expensive. This was not like funded by something else. Like this does not have to cost a lot of money. There's a really, this is something that is so much more accessible than I think society might lead us to believe. So I welcome feedback. I really want to just encourage and inspire. And I'm I'm happy to have this opportunity to connect with you today. So the handstands in brief, I grew up doing gymnastics. So I have to admit, I learned how to do a handstand young. I didn't always do them, but I never lost the ability to balance on my hands. This is very specifically during those four years of travel where I'm trying to redefine family and I'm trying to make sense of the world and all this other stuff. Part of my extended family of choice, so not my biological parents, but people who have become like family to me since then, way back when said, you know, you're doing all these travels, which are really, really interesting. It would be awesome if you had a way to like document your time with them. And this was in the era, some people travel with like a teddy bear, or there's one guy who actually does this chicken dance around the world, which you might have seen. And they said, you should do handstands. And so they set this like friendly bet with me, not realizing how seriously I would take them. And I thought, what a great idea, because what you don't realize here is that the one person who can't take that photo is me. 
and I'm traveling on my own at this point. So I have to find somebody local to take this picture, which means, you know, approaching someone I don't know and may not speak the language and doing a lot of like sign language, like I'm going to do a handstand and they have no, no idea what I'm talking about, but they agree to do it. And then everyone starts laughing and it ends up being an icebreaker. And I've ended up meeting people and playing with children and all this sort of thing. But it became a kind of hallmark of how I would document my travels in a way that was unique and allowed me to do things that people there don't normally. From that point forward, it just kind of clicked. And so I do them even today. I hope to be able to do them when I'm 100 years old, but I will still do handstands when I visit somewhere new. My husband is now sometimes along to take the picture. (laughs) But it has become, for me, it was such a joyful way to break the ice, but also kind of one of the taglines I like to use is when you see the world from an upside down perspective, like the world looks different. And sometimes, sometimes looking at the world upside down looks better than right side up. <laughs> so we all need to change, sort of regrind our lenses, going upside down, seeing something from a different perspective, literally and figuratively, is simply healthy and helpful for the human condition. So there you have it. (laughs) Oh, what an incredible story. And I want to let Java Junkies know April's website is her name. So April, like the month, Rinne, which is R-I-N-N-E dot com. And while you're there, you should sign up for her newsletter, which as you have gotten a little preview, is going to be full of all kinds of fascinating information. I want to just very quickly mention that April did go and get two postgraduate degrees. She alluded to her law degree that she got at Harvard. She got an MA in international business and finance from the Fletcher School at Tufts. Is that a good idea for Java junkies who want to make it in this bento box portfolioist career economy to get some kind of advanced degree, April? Oh, such a great question and a loaded question. The answer ultimately is it depends. Let me share a couple couple quick snippets, though. One thing, and, and I will show some bias here, I am 100% in favor of if you go to grad school, do not go straight through. Do not go straight after undergrad. I cannot tell you how helpful it is on any metric to spend some time working, traveling, all like studying the school of life for a while. Don't go straight through. That is like everybody that I meet to Sometimes it can work for people if they knew when they were five what they wanted to do and that's that. But you really need to figure out what it is that you want to go study, but also to better understand how the world of business or government or nonprofits or whatever work. It will profoundly expand and could transform what you think about grad school. So that's one piece. And for me, the time in between was the time of travel, which I wouldn't have traded for the world. It was still one of the It was difficult, but it was still one of the best chapters of my book of life. And it allowed me to get crystal clear on why I was going to grad school and what I was doing. And at that point, I had committed to I was really interested in global economic development, which is exactly what I've done in different ways. But that has been the the narrative arc of my entire career. Even though I've had different roles, it's always had a common through thread of mission and purpose. So in my case, I did a joint degree because I couldn't find any sole degree that was going to give me the full training and skills that I wanted. Am I glad that I did it? Absolutely. Would I want to do it again? 
Not so sure. Simply because it was very hard. It was a, it was incredibly hard load. And there are lots of different graduate degrees I would love to go back and get today. First and foremost, I think would be urban planning because anything around cities and geography is a really hot topic these days. But going back to the why you might get a graduate degree, you want a career in medicine or health sciences you're probably going to need to get a degree. Now, it might be an MD, it might be a nursing degree, it might be a master's in public health. There are some things where you've still got to be credentialed, especially in the business world, though. I think the biggest area where it arises is, do you need an MBA? I know entrepreneurs who never got an MBA, and they actually don't need one now because they've learned everything that an MBA was likely to ever teach them in the real world. Ultimately, you know, what's interesting is the people you meet and the mentoring that you get is a really important part of graduate school. I have a really hard time looking at the price tag that you pay for that kind of networking and that kind of relationship. So, you know, this is where I really, I don't want to hedge, but what I want to get at is one, go get some work experience, some real work experience. And this is where too, start your own business. Go do something for a few years that you may or may not grow into over time. But figure out whether or not that graduate school degree is really needed. And if it is, invest in it with your full heart, body, mind, and soul, and don't look back. But spend some time thinking about why you want to get it and whether it might be procured in different kinds of ways and not one straight path to agree, but a combination of being parts of different networks and communities and that sort of thing. Because the biggest challenge that I see is where, particularly with student debt, where individuals find themselves hamstrung by which professions they can look at because of the debt that they carry, as opposed to where can I be of greatest value to the world. So being really careful to do that calculus before you venture into grad school and think about it once you actually might have a a slightly bigger cushion underneath you um, and have given more deliberate thought as to what it is you're going after. And I, I worry that might sound a little bit loose, but the challenge is that people are different. And for some people, grad school is definitely going to be the right choice. For many people, they assume that they need graduate school, but more and more what we find is actually that may not be the case. Fantastic. So April, I have two final questions to ask you. The one is one that I ask all time for coffee guests. It's if you could go back to Emory and do it all over again. But based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? It's interesting. I I do have to give the caveat that for me, losing my parents was just such a big like thing that dropped in my lap in the middle that on the one hand, I'm like, I think I did pretty well. (laughs) Like I got through, right? But if I remove that, I think I'm really, really glad with the diversity of classes that I took. I don't know how I'm going to relate some listeners here, but part of me says I took myself really, really, really seriously. I really drove myself hard around GPA and grades. And, and in fairness, in some ways it paid off, but I didn't make quite the friendships that some of my other college classmates did. I was more friends with admin and faculty and grad students, which candidly I love. But I think in making sure that whatever you're doing, do a gut check around like, are you truly feeling joyful doing what you're doing? Are you doing it because you think others think you need to be doing this? Or are you doing this because you truly come alive and are delighted and 
feel that spark of curiosity. I think I still struggled back then with, I hadn't yet gotten confident with the ability to buck what others thought I needed to do and, and beat a little bit more to my own drum. So that would be a little bit of feedback. I also, I guess, as a plug, I mentioned urban planning in cities. Like there are some things like if I went back now, I would absolutely have taken a course or five in computer science. I would have taken more as in business as an undergrad. And I would have done more around anything related to cities. And cities is it's one of those topics that's just so broad and diverse. But cities are so much where the action is these days that more expertise on, you know, public health, urban planning, like all of that. Those are the courses I wish I had taken earlier, because I think I would have I would have done more professionally and at the graduate level even around those things. Wonderful. Thank you so much. As you know, April, I opened the door to my Time for Coffee guests and solicit ideas, suggestions for things that you think would be interesting for me to raise during the interview. And one of those things that you suggested was yoga and the fact that you completed your yoga teacher training this year. Yes. (laughs) It relates to more broadly, this need I think we all have, we all share to be like whole people that I always find it a little bit odd when the first question we ask somebody is like, maybe what's your name? But like, what do you do? Like, well, I'm more than what I do. Uh, Like, who am I? What makes me tick? What brought me here today? There are so many different questions we could ask. And going back to what I was saying earlier, even I, I mean, I have to be a lifelong learner, just like everybody else. And I've, I'm constantly on this quest for what are the kinds of skills that will serve me well professionally, but the skills that will serve me well in life. And I have practiced yoga for a few years and wanted desperately to do teacher training, not necessarily to teach. I love that it's on my CV now, but I'm not doing it to build my CV, no more so than I do handstands, which show up on my website, but they're not on my CV. And I I love most of the interesting stuff you learn about people is actually not on their CV. But the yoga piece for me was around better understanding, not just the practice of yoga physically, but we spent a lot of time on the history and philosophy. And you start getting into issues around spirituality and life path and how what we do on the mat translates off the mat and it bleeds into so many other things. And so I I bring this up, not only as I suppose a plug for yoga, but for me, my own lifelong learning and my own upskilling, who would have guessed that doing yoga teacher training would allow me to better advise startups or that it would actually improve my public speaking? Like that is certainly not why I took yoga teacher training. And yet it had all of these other unexpected, very delightful benefits. And it's also now a skill or a credential that I can carry with me. I don't teach yoga today, but I love the fact that I'm qualified to go teach it if I'd like. So simply to kind of come full circle and say, I too have to like practice what I preach. And what are those skills that that doesn't all have to be about the resume, doesn't have to be about the CV. What are skills that can help make you a better person and help you show up as your better self in the world. And for me, yoga has been a really wonderful vehicle to help nudge that along. 
So throughout our interview, April, as I've listened to you talk about your extraordinary life and your extraordinary adventures through life, I can't help but think about the way that we began this interview, talking about you as a self-described citizen of the world. And what goes through my mind as I hear you talk about your yoga teacher training and the death of your parents and your musings as a young girl, woman, about the ephemeral nature of life is that in a way you are a citizen of the world because much as some of these cultures and places like Indonesia actually celebrate death and burn the body and the ashes are kind of scattered to the winds, I think you have been scattering your fairy dust <laughs> mm. as you travel. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, it's a huge honor and a huge, just those those words, like, touch my heart. And uh, not to get too morbid, and this may go way beyond the scope of this uh, conversation, but I might as well m- mention it. When you do experience death, you do think about like your own death right? Like and you, you definitely learn that you want to be prepared for it. You, you don't want to leave other people having to deal with that sort of thing. And I'm grateful that my parents were very thoughtful before they died about what would happen should they die kind of thing. So shout out for future planning. But you know what, when I ultimately at some point, we all pass when I pass, I very much I've actually said that I want my I there are multiple locations around the world where I would like to be scattered. So maybe I'm doing a little bit of that now, and then there will be more to come at some future, hopefully some date long, long, long in the future. Well, I think you you. have. I really think you have. And hopefully now, thanks to technology, if we can, again, bring this back to something we discussed early on, we are sharing out your wisdom and your incredible insights to young people far and wide. So with that, April, thank you so much for making time for coffee of Sisters Coffee (laughs) with me and the Time for Coffee community today. This was such a joy for me to get to speak with you. Thank you. It was a joy and honor for me too. Thank you to everyone listening. And I hope you found some portion of this useful and a bit inspiring and just such an exciting path ahead. So thank you again. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much. Thanks.